We're really fortunate to have with us today Dr. Bray. Most of you know he's a professor at, a lot of you know that he's a professor at Beeson, but he, uh, he, he is from England and uh, spends most of his time in England, but he does come over for uh, semesters, uh, and we, he, he's in the United States uh, this, uh, this uh, winter semester. Uh, and when he's over from England, we sure like to snatch him up because just as solid as a rock. And so he will be here for a three-part series, uh, this being the first. We have two of his books in the bookstore, The Faith, the Faith We Confess, Exposition of the 39 Articles. This is a great book. For those of you who would like to take the 39 articles and uh, read them and use this book as a, as a guide. And then uh, God is Love. Is this, this is your newest. Yes, yeah, God is Love. It's also in the bookstore. Uh, and I highly recommend it's a biblical and systematic theology, Gerald, Dr. Gerald Bray. Highly recommend it to you. It's in our bookstore. Having said all of that, the Lord be with you, and welcome uh, again to the Advent. We're very fortunate to have you. Thanks very much. Um, thank you very much, Dean Limehouse, for your kind words of welcome. Um, a few months ago, the dean asked me to uh, lead a series uh, for you this January, uh, and uh, I thought to myself, well, a few months ago, I was in Australia back last August and speaking at a conference of the deans of the cathedrals of the Anglican Church of Australia, um, which is a rather esoteric group, as you can imagine. Um, but uh, I felt that the thing to do would be to talk to them about the church, the nature of the church, because they came from different parts of Australia, different kinds of uh, church background and so on. Uh, and one of the remarkable things over the time, we spent four days together, uh, and over that time uh, we managed, despite our many differences and different perspectives, to come to uh, a remarkable degree of unity and consensus uh, around the teaching of the scriptures. And so when the dean asked me to uh, speak to you in January, I thought, well, dean, cathedral, uh, put it all together. Maybe we could do the same thing here. Uh, not in exactly the same thing, of course, uh, but uh, on the same theme of the nature of the church, uh, because this is uh, a subject which is one of those things that at one level we tend to take for granted, uh, because after all, we're in a church and we, seem to, we know what it is, uh, but uh, for that very reason, uh, we seldom give it the degree of attention and thought that it deserves. And so I thought that over the next couple of weeks, we could look at this in some greater depth. And I wanted to start today with the question of the unity of the church. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. And I want today to look at this question of we believe in one church, in the one church, and to start off by looking at Ephesians chapter 4, <laughs> verses 1 to 16. I'm not going to read the whole thing uh, because our time is limited. Uh, but uh, this is, I think, a key text uh, in the Scriptures when it comes to this whole question uh, of the unity of the church. And the Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Ephesus, says, I, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation with which you have been called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering." forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, 
even as you have been called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. These few verses, uh, which uh, you can read and they they sound so encouraging and inspiring, contain within them a great deal of important teaching for us. They talk about the unity, the unity of the church, which is a unity grounded in the unity of God himself, the unity of the Spirit, the unity of Christ the Son, our Lord, and the unity of the Father. And it is at these uh, three different aspects of unity that I want to uh, concentrate our minds on this morning to see what we can learn from them. First of all, he says, endeavoring, verse uh, 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, even as you are all called in the one hope of your calling. The unity of the Spirit. There is one Spirit. The Holy Spirit is, in many respects, the founder of the church. Uh, It is the Holy Spirit who came and was sent uh, on the day of Pentecost uh, to the disciples gathered in the upper room. And when he fell upon them uh, and they began to speak in tongues and to go out and declare uh, to people the wonderful works of God in Christ, Uh, that men and women uh, heard the gospel message and turned to him for the first time. And Pentecost, that great day, is is held up even now as the day on which the church was born, the church's birthday. Birthday because it was in the power of the Spirit, as the work of the Spirit, that the people of God uh, were renewed in this particular sense. And to this day... Of course, we retain this memory. Uh, We retain this uh, teaching uh, as fundamental to us, that we are one in the Spirit, that we are called uh, to uh, bond together uh, in, in body, if you like, because we are one in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who brings life to the body of Christ. And yet, as with all things of this kind, We have to be very careful because we live in a world where people will pervert the truth, where people will take the words that we use and give them a content which they were never meant to have. And of course, the content which they give them sounds good. It's a caricature of the real thing. And in this case, of course, what we find, we live in a world uh, where people tend to assume that Uh, the spirit uh, which we are given is basically a spirit of enthusiasm, uh, a spirit of goodwill, a spirit of cooperation. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with any of those things. They are good things. But if we have enthusiasm uh, which is not based on truth, we are in trouble. I mean, one of the the nice things you can say about Adolf Hitler is that he was enthusiastic. Uh, Does this mean that you want to follow him? Well, uh, you see, that's another matter, because what was he enthusiastic about? Uh, Now, I take that as a rather extreme example, 
but it's an extreme example which is meant to illustrate the truth that I, I, I'm trying to get across to you, and that is that we live in a world today where people can often mistake the Spirit of God uh, for this kind of bubbliness, you know, this kind of spirit of, uh, uh, of human life, which is fine in itself. I mean, I'm, please don't misunderstand me. I certainly don't want, you know, people to go around sort of dead uh, on their feet, uh, you know, and telling everybody, oh, I'm so full of the joy of the Lord and I just want to share it with you. We don't want that, no. Uh, but uh, we've got to uh, get our perspective right here. And I say this with some feeling because one, in my career as a teacher, I often have to deal with people uh, who come to me for one thing or another and uh, they feel that the Holy Spirit is leading them to do this or leading them to do that or leading them to do something else. And of course, there's nothing wrong with this, uh, at least in principle. But what you learn over time is that it's remarkable how often the Holy Spirit seems to be leading people to do things that they would have done already. Um, anyway, you know. Uh, in other words, he's confirming them uh, in, in what they already think. Now, that may be so. I mean, I'm not saying that that's necessarily wrong, uh, but when you come, when people come with this kind of thing, when they come to you, you have to kind of look underneath. You have to kind of penetrate a little bit and ask yourself, well, what is it about this feeling that the Holy Spirit is leading you that you wouldn't have thought otherwise? You know, how has the Holy Spirit actually changed your way of thinking? How has he done something in your life uh, that uh, may have caused you uh, some grief, uh, that may have caused you to struggle, that may have caused you to consider uh, that there's something I have to sacrifice, something I have to give up, something I have to change, and to, in, to, to look underneath to try to see this. And the reason I say this is because uh, if you were in church this morning, uh, you will have heard the dean say uh, that uh, we are sinners who are dead in our trespasses and sins. The Holy Spirit does not come to uh, confirm the life that we already have, but to give us a new life that we do not already have. And if you are awake, awakened from the dead to newness of life, uh, there will be a change. There will be a transformation in the kind of person you are. And change is never entirely smooth or easy. There's, there's bound to be something, um, you know, uh, that's going on in your life which is shaking you up one way or another. And that's what I want to find out. That's what I want to know. You see, that's what I want you to tell me. So if the Holy Spirit is working in your life, how is he changing you? How is he transforming you? How is he showing you things that you would not otherwise have seen, that you would not otherwise have known, that you would challenges that you would not otherwise have faced? Now, it's different for different people. You can't make a list uh, and say, well, uh, you know, I need to see this and I need to see that and I need to see something else because we're all different uh, in this respect. But uh, while the, the, the precise circumstances may work out differently, the underlying phenomenon is the same because there is one Holy Spirit who brings new life to each one of us, a new life which is the basis of our belonging. It is the basis of our belonging to Christ and therefore, of course, of our belonging to one another. 
because that is the next thing. There is one body. If you are filled with the Holy Spirit, if you are being transformed by the power of God, then you are being brought into a body of believers. Um, Many years ago, I asked a Japanese friend of mine, I said, can you say one Japanese in Japanese? Is there a singular form for the word Japanese? And he said, well, yes, of course there is. And I said, oh, right. I said, do you ever use it? And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, every time I see (coughs) Japanese, they're always in groups of 50. (laughs) You know, you never seem to see them on their own. Uh, So I said, I'm just wondering, do you ever actually use the singular form, you see? So he laughed. He thought it was funny. Um, But uh, if you transpose this to Christians, you see, it's actually a very real question because... Although there is, of course, a singular form of the word, you can say, I am a Christian. We can, in fact, say this. And we do, in fact, say this from time to time. (coughs) We can't really use it in the singular very much. Because although it is true, of course, that I am a Christian, uh, and you are a Christian, and so on, we are never Christians on our own. Because even if we're lost on a desert island somewhere, uh, you know, uh, and are physically on our own, we are still one of a great company of uh, saints who have gone before us, of people who are believers in other parts of the world. Uh, You know, we're never on our own. We belong to an enormous company of people, whether they are sitting in front of us or not. So it is a very real question as to how often we can actually use this word Christian in the singular. I mean, we do and we can and we must, of course, in confessing our own faith. But we must never lose sight of the fact that I am not a Christian by myself. And therefore, what I think and what I say and what I do does not define what being a Christian is. What being a Christian is, is defined by our Lord Jesus Christ working in and by his Holy Spirit in his body. And if I am not in tune with the body, if I am going off on my own because I think I've got the vision from God and there I go, uh, and uh, I'm doing something which is totally unknown, totally unheard of, totally Uh, you know, uh, odd compared to what everybody else has always done and what everybody else does and thinks is right, then I may not be wrong. I'm not going to suggest that because occasionally God does call people, uh, you know, prophetic people uh, up and who have to sort of point things out and so on. Uh, And that does happen. But I do have to at least ask myself the question, am I really part of the body or not. You see, am I really walking with my brothers and sisters in the Lord, or am I claiming something for myself and appropriating to myself and indeed setting a seal on my own ideas uh, in a way which in fact is cutting me off from the body? And this is something that we have to take very seriously. Uh, in our life as a church. 
because it's very easy to be fed up with the church. I mean, if you're not fed up with the church, may I suggest that you get elected to some committee um, and sit on it, and it really won't take very long. You know, uh, because as I always say, there are two kinds of eternal life. Um, there's eternal life, which is believing in Jesus, uh, dying and going to heaven and living there forever. And then there's getting elected onto a committee and saying no to everything. And these people whom we call the abominable no-men, um, you know, you can never get rid of them. You know, you can poison their coffee, you can change the time of the meeting, you can do whatever you want. It doesn't work. You know, there's always going to be some awkward customer. So getting fed up with the church is actually quite an easy thing to do. But then what do you do when that happens? You see, do you go off and start your own church because you alone are right? I mean, lots of people do this. Or do you say, well, I belong to the body. Uh, I'm part of something bigger than myself. I may be right. That may, in fact, be God's gift uh, through me to the body. You know, I can come along and say, I'm right, and that's my, why I'm here. You may not like it, but I'm right. Um, or... Uh, or, or do I hive off, you see, on my own? And we have to ask ourselves this question because uh, we are part of a body in which it's not always easy to fit. I mean, people are difficult. You know, people cause problems. Uh, I mean, it's always much easier not to have them around. <laughs> you know... I once worked as a librarian, and the one thing I disliked were readers. Um, you know, because they took the books off the shelf, and I'd put them there, and I didn't want that. Um, and so this is, I mean, this is, this, is, this is what it's like, isn't it? I mean, people are a problem. But we have to live with them, and we have to work with them, and we have to function as the body. And if one part of the body is not functioning in the way that it should, then the whole of the body is in pain. I mean, if my little finger, you know, I've got something in my finger, a splinter or something like that, then the whole of me is concerned with this. I'm not going to sit back until I've pulled it out, until I am at peace, until the pain is gone. And that is what being part of the body means as well, to care about one another. Not to say, oh, chop them off, we don't need them, but uh, to work together in harmony, to, to share in the pain of others, to rejoice in the joy of others, to draw on the strength of others when we are weak, to give uh, our own strength uh, when we are strong, to work together in the body because we are joined together in Christ. And then, of course, there is the one hope to which we are called. To be a Christian is to have a purpose in life. And this becomes more important the older you get. You see, I find that, I'm finding this every day, you see, because the older you get, the more you ask this question, why am I still here? You know, and there are plenty of other people who are asking this question as well. Uh, and this, of course, uh, just makes it even more urgent. And... 
you have to say to yourself, but I'm here because I'm headed to the kingdom of God prepared for me in eternity. And I say to people in my own home church, you know, uh, I, I said, the great thing about being 85 is that you know you haven't got long to go. I said, pity the poor people who are 20. Now, it's possible, of course it's possible, that you'll outlive them. And the way a lot of 20-year-olds behave, you're quite likely to outlive some of them. But in the sort of biological uh, law of life, shall we say, you know, assuming this is going to work out this way, they've got longer to, go, to wait than you have. Is this a good thing or a bad thing? I think it's a good thing. I think it's a good thing because the hope that is in me is that I am going to be in heaven with the saints around the throne of glory, living with Christ forever, and that is where my concentration is. And the older I get, the more concentrated on that I am. It's amazing when you get older how things that worried you when you were younger don't bother you anymore. You know, you sort of let them go because you know that, that you can't solve them. You know that's not going to work. You're not, you've got other things on your mind. And this is such a wonderful gift because the older you get, the more focused you can be on the things that really matter. And as Christians, we are men and women of hope. This is what we are to be focused on, on the coming of our Lord into our lives to take us home to be with him. This is the ultimate unity of the Spirit. Just before Christmas, an aunt of mine died, and we had been very close many years ago. I hadn't seen her for a long time. But I called my uncle and my cousins and so on. We were talking on the phone, uh, one thing or another, and, and living the old times and so on. And I said to what, my uncle, I said, you know, I said, when things like this happen, I said, it's, it's very tragic in, in, in one way, in earthly times. I said, but I always feel, I said, that there's a part of me which has gone over to the other side, that there's some part of me which is now invested, you know, in the, in the world to come. And I'm looking forward more to that. That's my hope. It's not that I don't like the people around me, that, you know, that I particularly want to leave them behind or anything like that. No, it's just that as life goes on, more and more of the people that you know, more and more of the people who really mean something to you are people who, who've gone ahead. You know, they've crossed over. And you're looking forward to joining them in that place. And this is the hope that we are given in Christ. This is what our faith is ultimately all about in terms of where we're going in this world. And of course, it's when we have that perspective that the what we do in this world, how we live in this world, we organize accordingly. I mean, Jesus said, why build up your treasure on earth, uh, you know, which moth will uh, corrupt and destroy, thieves break in and steal, when you should be building up treasure in heaven. Why? Because the treasure in heaven will still be there when you go there. You can't take the treasure on earth with you, so why worry about it? You know, uh, get your perspective right. Get your hope right. The unity we have in Christ, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. 
Jesus Christ is Lord. This is a hard saying. There are many people who, who want Jesus Christ as their Savior uh, because they want him to get them out of whatever trouble they're in. But they don't want Jesus Christ as Lord. In other words, they don't want him telling them how they should live their life. And this doesn't work. Because our Savior is not a convenience, not a public service, not a kind of, you know, fire a department or something like that that you can call up when you need them. Uh, he is, of course, someone who rescues us from danger, yes. He is someone who gets us out of trouble, yes. But he does this because he is our Lord. He is in control of our lives. And if he is not in control of your life, then you are deceiving yourself. Because the truth is, he is in control of your life, whether you recognize this or not. You see, there's, there's no such thing as being without God in the world completely. The difference is, is God your Savior and Lord, the one who is leading you to his eternal uh, life in heaven? Or is he the one who is having to pass judgment on you and condemn you because you don't want him? You see, because you are rebelling against him, he is still your Lord. You can't change that. You can't get away from that. It's how you relate to your Lord. Are you prepared to accept him as your Lord? Are you prepared to submit to him as your Lord? That's the question. And that's what Paul was challenging the Ephesians to do. One Lord. He is the one who, is in, who should be in control of your life. And if he is in control of your life and he is in control of my life, then the chances are that we'll be on the same wavelength and therefore we will bond together as part of the body. This is the link. This is how it works. Then there is the one faith. We recognize one Lord. We confess the same things about him. It's no good uh, saying we all love Jesus and we all know Jesus if the Jesus we know and love is not the same person. You know, if what we say about him is something quite different. Uh, no, uh, we have a common faith. Uh, and the creeds of the church, the things that we confess when we meet together on a Sunday, are a reminder of this. That Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came into the world, who lived a human life, who died for you and for me, who paid the price for our sin, who is now risen from the dead, ascended into heaven, and is preparing a place there for you and me uh, to go and live with him in eternity. If this is not the Jesus that you worship, uh, if this is not the Jesus you know, if the Jesus you know uh, is a Jewish rabbi who said some interesting things, uh, but no more than that, uh, then uh, you haven't really met Jesus. You know, 
uh, if the Jesus you know uh, is uh, somebody who challenged the, 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 the powers that be in his time, who is a kind of rebel uh, and so on, uh, you know, but, and who's, who paid the price for that, that may be true in its way, but that's not enough. Uh, you have to go beyond this. You have to know Jesus Christ uh, as he is in his fullness, as he is uh, in uh, God's purpose for him in sending him into the world for you and for me. It's all got to hang together. And this is our one faith. This is what is common to us. And then there is one baptism. And what does the one baptism mean? It means that we're all equal in the sight of God. Because there's only one way that you can come uh, to faith in Christ. There's only one way that you can submit to him as Lord, and that is by dying and being born again. By dying to this world and being born again in the Spirit to the world of the kingdom of God. This is what the one baptism is all about. And there are no exceptions to the rule. You know, uh, there's, there are no loopholes here. Uh, there's no sort of special treatment given to somebody because, uh, you know, well, I belong to the country club or I have a PhD. Those are the real problem people. <laughs> you know. Oh, I'm telling you. I, I live in the academic world and the number of people who are convinced that God's got to let them into heaven because they've got a doctorate, you wouldn't believe. I, I think hell is full of people with doctorates, I'm convinced. <laughs> anyway, all busily sharing the things they've discovered that nobody else understands. I mean, can you imagine having to live with that? Um, anyhow, um, no. You see, we're all the same. We're all equal. And the great thing about this is you can't opt out of it. You see, uh, it's amazing how many people try to do that. They sort of say, well, uh, you know, it's all very well for you, but, but uh, no, not, it's not for me. I could never manage that. You know? Uh, there's a woman in my church. She's been there for a long time. We're great friends. But I was speaking a little while ago about forgiveness, and I, I don't know why, but she came up afterwards and said, I disagree with you. And I love people like that because so few people have that degree of honesty, you know. Preachers always get people on the door saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. And they wonder, do you really think that? Um, you know, so somebody who sort of comes up and says, I disagree with you, you think, oh, I love you, come in. What do you, you know, what did you disagree with? And she said, you talked about forgiveness. And I said, yes. And she said, well, I can't be forgiven. I said, what? She said, I can't be forgiven. So what do you mean? And she said, well, so if you knew what I've done in my life, so there are things I've done in my life I cannot forgive myself for. She said, if I can't forgive myself, she said, how can I expect God to forgive me for things I can't forgive myself for? So I said, sit down a minute. I said, he came into the world, he sent his son into the world for precisely that reason. He knows that you can't forgive yourself. He doesn't want you to forgive yourself. There'd be a problem if you could forgive yourself. I mean, I've got this problem. I, I mean, I, I've, I have no trouble forgiving myself. I could do anything and forgive myself very easily. You know, and I have to fight, fight this because that's wrong. 
you know. So I said, you're fine. I said, of course you can't forgive yourself. He has forgiven you for something that you cannot forgive yourself for. And then suddenly I said, you see, you can't use that as an excuse for opting out. You've got to have Jesus in your life as your Lord and Savior. Because he can forgive you, he has forgiven you, and you can't say to him, sorry, it doesn't apply to me. It does. There's one baptism, and the one baptism is for everybody. You know, it's something that every human being in the world can go through, can experience. Dying to self and being born again, it's not an exclusive thing. All right? I'm not saying it happens to everybody, but nobody can claim exemption from this on the ground that it doesn't apply to them or it won't work in their case. Not true. Uh, no one can claim a special way to heaven some other way. No. One baptism. One baptism for every single person. And then the unity of the Father. He's above all says the Apostle Paul. What does this mean? Well, it means he's up there, transcendent and eternal. And this means he can't be manipulated. You see, people are always trying to manipulate God one way or another. I discovered this when I was ordained, when I was a young curate in London. We had two old ladies in the church who used to compete for the clergy's favors. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was just... You, 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 you wouldn't believe, you see. Uh, I mean, one of them would, would sort of come and offer to clean the house. The other one would bake you a cake, you know. And, and, and it would just sort of go on like this. And this, this can get very tedious after a while. Um, because although it's all very well-intentioned and so on, uh, you say to yourself, well, what are they actually trying to do? And what they're trying to do is sort of gain favor with God. Uh, and I think if, they, if, you know, if I can gain favor with the rector or the, the curate or somebody like this, then they're closer to God than I am. And maybe they can sort of put a good word in for me, you know, and we can kind of manipulate it like this. And you have to say, no, it doesn't work like that. You know, uh, pulling strings uh, with God doesn't, doesn't help. Uh, and it's very hard to deal with this sometimes because you have to sort of, it's something, it's a mentality, you see, that God is above and beyond manipulation in this way. And it's just as well that he is because his promises are eternal. His promises will be fulfilled. You see, you may think it's fine for me to manipulate God to change his ways, but what if somebody else were trying to manipulate God to exclude you from participation? You know, I mean, I'm not nearly as bothered about getting to heaven myself as I am about keeping other people out. <laughs> if I'm honest. You know, because who wants the person next door who plays their hi-fi at 2 a.m.? you know, and wakes up the entire neighborhood. I mean, do you really want this person in heaven? Who wants the person who steals your parking place every five minutes? Do you really want that person in heaven? You know, I mean, 
you've got to see the other side to this. It's all very well to say, well, if, you know, I don't want to get there myself, but the human heart is very devious. The human heart is very nasty. You know, and deep down inside, uh, there's just no telling what we would do to God if we could get our hands on him. <laughs> you know, we'd make God over in our image uh, in, in no time at all. And so he's transcendent. He's above and beyond all that. We can't manipulate. And thank God we can't manipulate him because he'll be there for us regardless of all that. He is above and above, uh, 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 transcendent and eternal. And then he's through all. His authority is infinite and pervasive. There are people who say, well, you know, there are things in the world that God can't get involved in. There are things in the world that God can't deal with. There are things in the world that God doesn't touch. You know, uh, bad things, evil things, and so on. Uh, and how can we live? We've got to keep away from all of this. Uh, and you try to run away from it and sort of, you know, try to be protected from all of this. But God is sovereign over his creation. You see, he allows us a degree of freedom, yes. Why does God allow the devil to exist? I don't know this. Why did God create the devil in the first place? I don't know that either, except that God created the devil just as he created you and me with a free will which he then used to rebel against him. But God, rather than annihilate this person, you see, for, for rebelling, allowed him to carry on. Why did this happen? I don't know. All I can say is he's allowed me to carry on as well because if I got what I deserved, I would have been annihilated a long time ago. I mean, that's what I deserve. I don't understand the way that God works in this way. I mean, if I were God, you wouldn't be here. I mean, why would I be bothered? Come on, you know, I just want to live a quiet life. No. You know, but praise God that I'm not God. You know, his ways are deeper than mine. I can't understand. I can't figure this out. I don't know the answer to these things. But I know that he is in control, that he is in charge, and therefore I can live with the assurance that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, uh, as David said, I will fear no evil. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I don't know what's going to happen today. But I walk in faith and assurance that God is in control of my life and that whatever happens to me, he is putting me through these things for his reason, for his purpose, and I have got to try to figure out in my relationship with him, what he is showing me, what he is teaching me. Is this easy? No, it's not. And I'm not going to pretend that it is. But those of you with a military background know that the more training you have, the more likely you are to be in the front line. Is the front line where you want to be? Well, in one sense, no. Because if you're in the front line, you're more likely to get shot than if you're sitting in an office in Washington. You know, 
just signing papers so that other people can go out and get shot. No, to be a frontline troop means that you have been trained, you have been uh, uh, prepared for this, you have been put through uh, all kinds of discipline and struggle and so on. But you have been chosen, you have been shown worthy to be in that position. So if you're in the front line and you're being fired at, don't say, why am I here? You know, say, this is what God has prepared for me. This is what my training is all about. This is why uh, he has chosen me. And this is a privilege. I'm not going to say you're going to, you'll like it. You know, it's not about liking it. It's about doing what is right in the sight of God and knowing that if he has put you there, he has put you there for a reason and he's going to get you out uh, of it uh, in his good time and in his way. So trust him for that. And then he is in us all. The wonderful thing about having God in your life is that he keeps surprising you. And he keeps surprising you by showing you what you're really like, which is not nice, and then showing you what he can do about it, which comes as a big surprise. You know, because God has uh, always new things to teach us, always something new to give us, always something new uh, in which we can grow and develop and learn. And this is the wonderful thing about being a Christian. You know, new every morning uh, is your love. Great is thy faithfulness, so it says in Lamentations. You see, the, uh, the, the, the poet who lived in the ruins of Jerusalem was nevertheless able to say that the faithfulness of God is, uh, is unending because God is present in us and with us all the time. And so we come to a conclusion, and this is where we have to end today. How do we participate in this? How do we get into this? First of all, we have to have a humble and a contrite heart. Without humility, you're never going to get anywhere. You're never going to learn anything from anybody if you aren't humble, and you're certainly not going to learn from God uh, in that way. Then, accept that there's a diversity of gifts. We learn from each other. Um, one of the saddest things in the world is to meet people who are jealous. I hope you're not jealous. Jealousy is a complete waste of time. It's very inefficient. Um, it's, it cuts you off from blessing. Because when you see somebody who's got something you haven't got, uh, you know, you should say, hey, that person's got something I haven't got. Maybe they'll share it with me. Not how can I get it because then you'll spend all your time, all your money, all your effort on something that A, you'll, you, you're not meant to have, and B, you cannot have. And it will, it will corrupt you. You know? You'll be consumed with jealousy. Don't be jealous. Part of the body means living and sharing and using the gifts of others to grow together. It's a wonderful thing. And then, of course, we have to be mature enough to know... Uh, to be able to speak the truth in love. That's what Paul says here. That's one of the hardest things to do. You know? So often we think that loving other people means not telling them the truth. And therefore, telling them the truth 
is not an act of love. And many of us find that very hard to do. And let's face it, sometimes it is hard to do because the truth hurts. The truth is hard. But knowing how to do that, knowing how to live in the truth yourself in humility and in without jealousy will give you the strength and the power to share the truth with others so that they too may grow and benefit. We're not wanting to, to tell the truth to people in order to destroy them. We want to tell the truth to people in order to build them up in love because that's what true love is all about. Those who love you are those who tell you the truth, whether you like it or not. And there's nobody who loves you more than God, who has told you the truth by saying, you need to die and to be born again, and I'm sending you my son to make that possible. And that's why we're here, ultimately. Let's pray, shall we? Our Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we've had together now. And bless us, I pray, as we go our separate ways. Help us in all that we do this day to grow to be more like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in all that we think, in all that we say, and in all that we do. For his name's sake we ask it. Amen. Amen.